Thanks for that piece of shit, Lieutenant, that's always uh, on his podcast. Pass us. Yeah. <laughs>
And I was there from the beginning, from that day, all the way to the end of the uh, rescue and recovery efforts. Fast forward, I ended up in the police department. I'm the only person in my family to have become a police officer, although I had distant relatives and family that were on the job many years ago. And then when I left the academy, I was sent to the glorious Fort uh, Z, which is 7-3 in Brownsville, New York. It's uh, one square mile of projects and the most violent commands in the nation went out there. Uh, we did Operation Impact, similar to you, uh, both retired lieutenants. And then I was moved to Crown Heights. And then through a series of events, I was picked up into certain units to help with um, some newsworthy training. CPR was an issue at the time. That was my background. And uh, the department, you know, needs of the department pick you up to where they need you. And that's where I ended up. Personally, I really didn't want to do that. I teach CPR at the American Heart, but I wanted to do enforcement. I love the street. I love first responder. I worked EMS. I've always worked midnights. I went to school and worked two jobs. So midnights was my thing. And when I met Eric at PSA 7, when I got promoted to sergeant, I worked midnights, which was bizarre because most people, especially females on the job, want day tours, right? Or crime analysis or DV. And I'm not knocking that. But when I met Eric, he met me on patrol, working midnight patrol. Fast forward, I had a few line of duties and an exposure in this job that led me uh, years later to leave the job. And my actual big line of duty was the night Eric and I were working together. We can talk about that in the future. But knowing that Lieutenant Dim was outside of my location gave me a sense of security and safety. Because from the day I met him, I knew how he operated. And he always says intrusive policing. I like to say safe policing, proactive policing, taking care of your cops first and then everyone else. And I felt that that night, um, which led to the series of your events, that incident that night. So uh, that could be for future. So fast forward, my career did not go the way I planned. It put me in a space that I didn't like because I didn't want to be that female sergeant cop working inside. And because of unforeseen injury, that's what happened. And I had an opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with the cops, to be there for them, to help them, coach them, mentoring them. Fast forward, how I came to Dr. Baumgart was recently, about two months ago, I saw her book. I saw something on social media uh, that she advertised on retirement. And it struck a chord and resonated within me because last year I was unexpectedly retired a lot of people tell me, hey, you're lucky, you left disability. And I think to myself, what's so lucky about being broken, right? About being injured, about going in a direction you didn't plan at the peak of your life in your 40s. Uh, so when I saw her book, I was interested. And you know, I cold turkey just messaged her and wanted more information on who she was, who the, what the book was. Because as you guys are doing this podcast, you talk a lot about mental health. And I thought this might be a good segue for a lot of us who are spontaneously and unexpectedly retired to perhaps cope. And this is before I even read her book. So her and I made contact. We had a healthy discussion, which led us to this podcast. And the last caveat to this discussion and me really pushing, and thank you gentlemen for taking me seriously to bring her on and to address the needs of recently and retired cops when I was working uh, a few years ago, right before the pandemic, I saw an article on the department computer. And it was an article of a 78-year-old police officer in Staten Island who died by suicide, January 2nd, 2020. You can Google it, it'll pop up right away. And that resonated within me because we've heard of department suicides, active, but I didn't really pay attention to retirees. And I thought to myself, 
at 78. Why, you know, would he have gone this far in his life and done this? And then a month later, someone very close to me who recently retired died by suicide the night that we were going to Paris together. And for me, that was the beginning of this journey to start bringing awareness beyond active members, but to retirees and mental health. And this is how I'm with Dr. Bomber. Thank you for that. Doctor, if uh, you could just fast forward. Now, I read your book mm -hmm. and I understand why you wrote it. Um, could you tell the audience what actually drove you to write this book? Like what was what was given to you in your heart where you were like, all right, I, I, I want to sit down and I want to put effort into putting this book out and, and giving this to, to law enforcement across the nation. Um, so the biggest factor was uh, when my husband retired, um, he was not at a great point. Um, and both of us had naively believed that once he retired, we could all take a deep breath and move on. Uh, that could not be farther from what actually happened. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of weird because as a psychologist, I'm equipped with all of the knowledge and skills and experience to help other people. That's, that's what I do. But I found when it was my own husband, it was exceptionally difficult for me. Um, and in kind of trying to seek out additional information, some tools and some resources, I found that there really wasn't much uh, directed at COPS. And there wasn't much mm -hmm. for spouses to help us understand how do we not only get used to the adjustment ourselves, but how do we help our spouses? And so that, for me, I felt very powerless uh, and helpless to kind of ease his pain and suffering. Um, and then as he started, it took him a couple years to start coming out of his funk. And I essentially, I handed him a notepad and I said, I want you to write down everything that you wish you would have known that you'd want your partners to know that you'd want other retiring cops to know. And that was the foundation for the book. And then in talking with other retirees, you know, we're, we're not unique in what we experienced. And so I found that a lot of uh, retirees, a lot of their spouses were suffering in silence. And I said, you know what, I just got to write this. Uh, for me, it was a little different because I'm pretty transparent when people talk to me about stuff, uh, but having it on paper, um, was an interesting journey for me. Um, and then my husband as well, because he helped me and approved everything that's in the book. But that's essentially how this came together. Because I just, this is the info that I wish my husband and I had. You know, it, it, it's so great to hear you tell this story right now, because here you are, you're the prominent doctor, you have the experience, and, and you're dealing with people. And you're honest and humble enough to say that at your own home is where you found the difficulty. And I actually, I can correlate this. I remember myself. I remember my oldest daughter when she was about four years old. We were in the park together. I was with, I was playing with her in the park. And you know those fireman poles the kids slide down? She went to slide down the pole, and she tripped, and she missed it, and she went down, and she broke her arm. And I'll never forget that day. So here I am at the time. I was I was a young sergeant, motivated. I, I, you know, I, I was used to dealing with, with crazy situations. But in this particular situation, when it happened to me, I was a nervous wreck. I picked her up. I remember I was running home screaming, and I was just a complete mess. And I said, wow, I, I, I handle havoc situations on a daily basis. But when it happened to me, I was just completely emotionally invested, and I just lost sight of everything. So I can totally understand. That. I really appreciate being honest with that. Yeah, so sure. I didn't have an opportunity to read your book yet. And I'm super excited about it because here I am in Bangkok. By the way, having a great time. Uh, so just when I look, just when I see the the title, right? 
to survive in retirement. And to me, the word survive means so many things, right? And survive is to, you know, to make it out of something that's extremely difficult. So could you tell me, I mean, is the difficulty in retirement the buildup? I mean, because here we are, when you get on the police department, especially the NYPD, it's a 20-year, uh, It's for some people, it's a 20-year sentence, but you're serving 20 years before your retirement. So you're always thinking about and planning for your retirement, and we think we're going to this total bliss. So is is the point of this that it, it's something that's unexpected, that we're really not ready for it? It's not what we thought it was? What, what is your take on that correlation on planning for retirement and actually getting there? I look at it this way, you know, I, I kind of correlate uh, preparing for retirement, like going to the academy, right? So when you first on your journey to become a cop, you go to the academy and the academy gives you a foundation, right? You graduate the academy. The reality is you still don't know Jack about being a cop um, until you're actually out there doing it. And hopefully you have meaningful experiences on the job. You have good mentorship and leadership on the job. And then ad with additional training, that's really how you find your footing and your identity as being a police officer. I feel in law enforcement, you know, there's everybody like Antoinette said earlier is, you know, happy retirement, congratulations, you made it. Um, and the reality is nothing prepares you for it. It's the job does, you know, great at teaching you how to respond to a variety of things, but it doesn't really teach you how to recover. And I think, you know, if you take the accumulation and the, the impact of a law enforcement career into retirement, um, a lot of times all of these things that are extremely normal responses um, are taken out of context, right? I think the cop lens is worst case scenario. So when you're trying to interpret, you know, what's going on with me, um, the brain's going to want to go to worst case scenario, you know, and, and for me, that really puts it almost in a survival mindset. Uh, I just got to get through this. I don't know what the heck's going on. I just got to get through this. So, that, so, you know, I, I, I appreciate the part of your book and I think it relates to people like me and Antoinette, right. Um, you know, and people who were jammed up, right. Like Antoinette got injured. She was, see you later. You're retired. Have a nice, have a nice life. You know, I was within seven days, had to make a decision to make a retirement. I wasn't able to plan. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about the impacts of abruptly leaving one. Yes. Where mm -hmm. it's not planned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, any, and I think it's, you know, any, any profession is, I, I think people have a general sense of how they'd like to go out. And usually it's on top. And um, anytime there's situations, whether it's medical issues, politics, administrative stuff that forces you out, where it's not <laughs> on your own terms, you know, on top of the, the normal range of stuff that you experience in retirement, there's this added layer of typically it's anger, uh, it's sadness, um, it's a lot of unresolved. I think about it like grief, mm -hmm. right? is when you have to say goodbye to somebody or somebody dies unexpectedly, not only are you feeling the loss, but your brain has so many questions and it's trying to make sense of it. And then there's this internal conflict of how I wanted to retire, kind of what my, my ideal retirement situation was in my career versus the reality of what it actually is and trying to reconcile those two things it can be exceptionally difficult. Can I interject with what she mentioned about grieving, Dr. Baumgart? 
one of the things I wrote down because your book is a roadmap, it is a guide, and you have some pointed questions for the retiree or soon mm -hmm. to be retired. So I started doing my homework, nice. which didn't feel like homework. It actually really felt cathartic and it was healing. But one thing I did write down was the rite of passage, mm -hmm. like in terms of the feelings attached to retirement, John and I left abruptly. And so did you, Eric. I still say Lieutenant Dim. I still have you on my phone as Lieutenant Dim. We all have something in common. We left abruptly, not as we envisioned in our 40s. I just told everyone your age, sorry. Um, you know, we, we didn't have that opportunity to plan, you know, plan the, the vacation, the retirement party, the time together with everyone saying goodbye, the cleaning out your locker over several months. It happened literally in like two hours. I retired, I was retired formally out of a hospital bed and I lost my health insurance because the pension section did not do my paperwork. And I was given a two weeks notice and I was told to pick a day this month to retire not realizing I can use all this time I had on the book. So it was traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that it's grieving, just like a funeral, a wake, all religions have uh, uh, customs, right? To say goodbye to your loved one. Some wear black for a year, European countries. Mm -hmm. Some bury within two days. Some do wakes for three days. We didn't have that opportunity to have the rite of passage to say goodbye and then hello mm -hmm. to the next chapter. It was just kind of like, thrown in like being at work and running to a 85 or 13 you're thrown into something you could be eating and that's it you're going and you run and you take care of it and that's it and your adrenaline and we're, we're here with this amped up state of okay what now mm -hmm. uh, in hindsight i think i'll speak for myself we're all looking back saying we left egypt right thank god but it came with a price and your mm -hmm. book lays out a roadmap and it helps us answer tough questions about our feelings attached to this which I think is really important for everyone listening now, especially with the mental health conversation that people loosely put out there, you actually provide people tools to identify these mental health barriers attached to retirement. Yeah. And, uh, you know, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. No, no, I, I, just want to, I just want to say that's a, a fantastic statement. I think that was a great synopsis and I can't agree with more. I, it was very good. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, my husband's situation was a little different when he retired, but I know he would have also worked till he was 55. I think that was his goal. And then just the way things were evolving in policing at the time, he was a cop's cop. That's all he, he loved to do. We didn't have weekends. We didn't have holidays because he was at work. And so it got to a point where it was causing us problems just because he was coming home with so much anger and he was spiraling in my in in my head. I, I had the nightmare of he's going to have a heart attack or he's going to stroke out. And so when he hit 50, um, he, he was at 29 years, which I know he wanted to hit that 30 year milestone. Um, but I said, you know, look, I I said, I can't, you know, I said, you're we're, I'm going to lose you and I don't want to lose you. Um, and so ultimately he made the decision to turn in the paperwork, but I know that it was before he wanted to, and it wasn't at a point in his career that he wanted to retire at, you know, with how he was thinking and feeling. Cause he loved being a cop, he loved taking bad guys to jail and things had just changed. Um, but it was very abrupt from that point on, you know, he talks about loading up his boxes and feeling like he got fired. Um, you know, and when he left, he had a department vehicle for about 15 years. 
And so on his final day, he turns in all of his stuff. He signs the paperwork saying, you understand you're no longer a sworn peace officer. Um, and uh, he had to obviously give up his car and no one thought to uh, ask him if he needed a ride home. So he was sitting in his office with his box, feeling like he got fired. I was stuck at work, so I couldn't get to him. Um, but fortunately, I had a partner who was able to bring him home. But it's all of that kind of sets the stage, I think, for the stuff that you bring into retirement. And that can either make it better or make it worse. You know, I think that uh, John and Antoinette and myself, particularly John and Antoinette, their stories are very similar. And I think that my story is similar to them, but different. Uh, so they, they retired abruptly and had a transition immediately. And I feel like my, my retirement was like a slow death. It was a slow, painful death because I had been targeted by the, an overzealous civilian complaint review board. I had received eight sets of administrative charges in one calendar year for the civilian complaint review board. So at this time, I already knew in my head that I was going to retire, that I had to retire because I could not do what I was paid and trained to do anymore. I was offered positions to work in intelligence, to work in the squad, but then I would have more of a desk-based job, and that's not what I wanted to do. I loved being a cop in the street. I, I always felt, yeah, I was a lieutenant. I had the bars, but I was really a cop that led other cops. So for me, it was a slow, painful death because I knew I had to get out. And every day I came in, I started to get leprosy, and, and people really started to remove themselves from me because I was, at this point, I was like uh, like a stain on the pants. I was no good anymore to anybody. I couldn't go on the street. They didn't know what to do with me, so I had leprosy. So I left in anger, and I can tell you, even to this point, that you know, I refused to have a walkout. So what they do in the New York City Police Department is when people retire, they have what's called the walkout, where people line up and you walk out, and you can, you know, it can be as fancy as you want. You got people singing, dancing. You can walk out, people clap for you. And I said, I don't want it. And I took everything in my locker, and I, I took a big garbage bill. I threw it all in the garbage. Everything on my desk, all my, my all my awards, everything, and I left. And I basically told everybody, I'm leaving, I'm retired. Like, well, when are you retiring? Well, this is my last day working. And I actually officially reti retired a month after that. But I, I left in anger. And mm -hmm. <clears throat> this has been very therapeutic to me. And also, you know, being involved in martial arts. And so we definitely want to help people. So what I felt also, that's why I want to talk about this. If you could talk about sense of belongings. I think that's very important. So I didn't, I felt I didn't belong anymore. You know, I was Captain mm -hmm. America. I was the boogeyman. And, you know, everybody loved me. I had the greatest evaluations. I was getting all these awards. And once I started getting attacked by the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the job had no use for me anymore. And I had leprosy and I didn't belong anymore. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's what people fear leaving uh, in retirement is that they don't belong anymore. So what do you say to people about how to belong? Should they try to belong with the people they worked before or should they try something new? What's mm -hmm. the best way to transition for the best mindset? Well, so, and I think my husband, the way that he had retired was very similar to yours. The anger build up gradually kind of working his way out, knowing I think intellectually that it was time, but emotionally it was a different story. And I think because he was a cop's cop, right? He, he was all about the job, all of his friends, social circle, was all cops and he worked specialized teams a lot towards the end of his career. So it was, you know, a smaller group and those team dynamics are very different. And that abrupt change going from, you know, having this built in support system to retiring to now feeling like an outsider. 
you know, he said that he went from feeling um, very respected uh, and appreciated for all that he did to then now being somebody who was outside of that. Uh, he had tried to stay connected with the job. So a couple of times going to going back to his old unit um, and he very quickly realized, you know, he went from being able to go in, they buzz him right in still to now going in. The person at the front has no idea who you are. You have to wait to get, they have to get somebody who, who knows you to then escort you through. Um, and I think for him that that was a turning point of saying, okay, this is not, I can't continue to do this because I think it highlighted um, that feeling of being an outsider and you have this family, you know, and, and it's, I think the one thing I love about law enforcement and being part of that family is that it doesn't matter what happens. We're here for each other. And I think in retirement, you know, you have friends, just like if you go IOD or ROD, right? You have friends that will check in and then gradually that kind of tapers off over time. And it's, you know, a lot of his buddies moved out of state, some died. And so it really was um, him just trying to figure out and rebuild that social circle, that support network for him. Before John. <clears throat> Yeah, John stepped out for a minute, but before John comes back, I want to say, we had talked offline when we had the meet and greet, and mm -hmm. when you introduced us together, and it really sticks out in my head, and again, I want to let the public know, and it's a great, I think it's a great show, and it was a great episode, and it was just a great moment, and everyone should watch it, that's especially in retirement, and it was the last episode of the last season of NYPD Blue, and one of the detectives had just recently retired. And he goes back to the detective squad to visit his buddies. And he thinks you can see on his face, he thinks he's going to be uh, welcomed with open arms. But it was almost like he wasn't even there. And they were yeah. so busy, they didn't even have time to talk to him. And they really didn't seem to care. And he said, I'll never get this. He goes, Wow, when you're gone, you're gone. Hey, stranger. How you doing, John? Great. Hey, Greg. I was just showing an apartment in the neighborhood. I thought I'd stop by. Why? You didn't waste any time getting started with the new job, did you? No, I didn't. Hey, you met a boy. How's it going? Aren't you going back downstairs? Andy's a new squad commander. <laughs> That's great, Andy. Well deserved. Thanks. Hey, look who's here. Hey, buddy. Hey, partner. Hey, uh, it uh, turns out Nakata has a history of going in the hole for betting opponents. Who is he betting with? Howard Siegel's a bookie. His uncle bailed him out with the last time. But uh, he also told us that Nakata knew Halbrenner. Go talk to Halbrenner's driver again. See how committed he is to that alibi. And why don't you guys go talk to the bookie? Find out if the marker's been paid. You guys just transferred in? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, stick with this guy. Uh, he'll tell you everything you need to know. Hey, it's good to see you, buddy. I'm sorry, I gotta run, right? I'll talk to you later. Yeah. Squad commander. Yeah. Guys, run Heilbrenner through DMV. Get Got the plate it. numbers off any cars registered to him or members of his family. Better boy, I gotta run downstairs. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Boy, when you're gone, you're gone. 15 squad. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's my husband said the very same thing. You know, when he was walking around, it's you get the kind of the esteemed, you know, presence and respect. 
and then it very quickly shifts to who the heck is the old guy? You know, who is this old guy that's just standing around, you know? Um, and that, I, exactly, when you're gone, you're gone, out of sight, out of mind. And you realize, and I think talking, not only my husband, but even talking with other retirees, it's, um, you know, you, the sense of like, you quickly realize that you're, how people say, like, just a number, right? Mm -hmm. your, your seat's not even cold before they got it filled back up again. And then that starts, to me, that sets off this domino effect where the brain starts kind of reevaluating everything throughout the career. I gave you this, I gave you this, I gave you this, and I'm just a number. So I think that's very devaluing um, for some folks. And, you know, my, my husband, it's, I think, it's the title of one of my chapters in my book is, you know, he said, I gave you my life and you handed me a receipt referring to the receipt for him turning in his gear. And for me, I was like, oh, when he said that, it just gut punch. I felt it. I was like, okay. John, I just want to get you up to speed. Uh, we stepped out for a moment. Right. We just called about this. Was that? I heard it. I heard oh, it. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, so, outstanding. Doctor, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. it's a, you know, it's a great analysis of, of belonging and, and that feeling of, of, you know what, do I have, do I have a purpose here anymore? Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. The NYPD, we hear when you're on the job, you're the best. And when you're retired, you're a pest. And everyone jokes oh. about that. They use it frequently. And now I know what that means. Even going to get my stuff, I know what that means. But also, it's, it's, really, um, it's really disheartening because you feel rejected and abandoned mm -hmm. to that whole shift of when you're not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they praise you. And then when you're gone, it's just you're the retiree that sometimes we joke about, this, especially when you work midnights, you have someone call the desk and they say, I'm retired five years ago. And what do cops usually do? They roll their eyes and be like, oh, he's bored. You know, I have mm -hmm. a condition on my block. And yeah. I remember cops would joke about it and be like, oh, this guy's bored. But he was one of us or she mm -hmm. yeah. uh, working with us. Dr. Baumgart, on your, in your book, something that stood out to me that change how I speak about post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. was something you wrote. And I wanted you to expand on that for, for the audience. Uh, you mentioned post-traumatic stress injury, mm -hmm. not disorder. And frequently we hear PTSD, PTSD, mm -hmm. military PTSD, no disrespect, Eric, but I'm just loosely saying how people mm -hmm. say, right? Post-traumatic stress, he's a veteran. I like to think all of us are veterans of this culture of first responder and, and what we did, right? especially in the past few years that took a lot of um, negative turns and political themes. So a lot of cops are struggling or people in the world, but especially first responders with post-traumatic stress that's compounded mm -hmm. from patrol itself, then the politics combined. Why do you choose the word injury as compared to disorder? So this, my response is probably going to get me ousted by all my uh -oh. colleagues, but... <laughs> But I just, I, you know, I mean, as I think as psychologists, we're trained to diagnose. Um, I'm, I'm less concerned with the label. Uh, yes, it does inform treatment and how I'm going to help you. Uh, but for me, that's, that's my own internal stuff. Um, I think when we're talking about mental health issues, post-traumatic stress injuries, um, that's exactly what it is, is you've been through some stuff and your brain and your body literally sustained an injury. And injury implies that it can be healed. I know that if I go to my doctor and they say, you have this disorder, I'm like, oh my gosh, well, how much time do I have left? You know, 
it's very doom and gloom. And when they say you have an injury, that implies that it might not be back to 100%, but I can heal. Uh, and in treating cops um, and retirees, I've learned that when you say something is an injury, um, it kind of opens the, the mind to treatment, to accepting treatment is, oh, yeah, I have these things and these injured me and I'm doing these treatments so that I can heal. And you might still have some scars, um, but, you know, it's going to be healed over time. And that seems to be that's something I've applied in my professional practice um, and even to other issues, depression, anxiety. Um, I don't I we, we don't need to label it. You know, are you depressed? Yeah, you're human. Are you anxious? Yeah, you're human. Did you go through a bunch of crap in your career and then it's changed how you see and view yourself in the world? Yeah. You know, first responders are exposed to critical incidents at a much higher rate than the general population. Not everything is going to be a post-traumatic stress injury, but it's understanding, you know, what are those factors and variables that can compound um, and that can lead to an injury. And then once you you figure out that you have this injury, how do you get it treated? So it just shifts the focus more towards getting treatment. Doctor, not I think the biggest thing in your book that continues to sit in my mind and, and why I opened the podcast with it was your stance on hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. Not a mindset transforms your body. Yes. Right? And, um, you know, and, you know, we'll put the elephant out there in the room. You know, I, uh, I, I, I spoke about this on an earlier podcast, but in retirement, all of a sudden, I just started experiencing anxiety where mm -hmm. I've never had it in my life. And I feel like I need to be like my adrenaline's flowing mm -hmm. and I need to be doing something, even though absolutely nothing is going on. Mm -hmm. And I live in paradise and my life is good. And I'm thankful for the way my life has turned out. And I have no issues with my family other than normal, you know, medical worries, things of that nature that everybody deals with. And it's, I, I do believe over the time of being in that hypervigilant state. And I, and I believe I was always pretty hypervigilant and I was always very observant person and took all of my surroundings around me just based upon where I grew up and how I grew up and where, where my, the way my family was and everything like that. I've always been like a high vibration person. I walk in a room, the crazy people attract to me, the evil people <laughs> attract to me, the good people attract to me. Uh, you know, it just, it, it, I, I, so I've always kind of experienced that, but I think law enforcement multiply <laughs> that like tenfold for me. Yeah. It multiplied it 10, tenfold for me. And it, it, it really brought me into into like a state where I was like constantly in in feeling a threat, right? Like you're in a car. If I see an RMP, I see cops sitting in a car and they're not looking. It makes me nervous, mm -hmm. and then it brings me back into being in that car. Or if I see cops walking in a store with their with uh, with their when they're on their phone texting, mm -hmm. it makes me nervous because mm -hmm. I'm like I I could never do that. Mm -hmm. I could never sit in that car with my head down. I could never even be on my phone. My wife knew even when we were dating or if, even prior to her, like, don't call me because I'm not picking up the phone. If it's mm -hmm. an emergency, text me and I'll get, I'll get back to you. Like, I'm not picking up my phone. I'm not playing games. And I believe that after leaving law enforcement, I'm still in that state. Mm -hmm. so 
just walk us through what hypervigilant is, hypervigilance is to you and what sure. you think the effects are on the body and on the mind, not only during when you're on law enforcement, but when you leave. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, the job wires your brain and your body to operate under very specific conditions. Um, already just paying attention, having your head on a swivel uh, from in terms of a biological state, you're already operating at a higher level than, you know, Joe Blow citizen. And so the normal biological response to hypervigilance, right, what goes up must come down. So when you're up here, the body naturally wants to kind of dip back down and recover. The challenge for cops and first responders is that you don't get that luxury during your shift, right? This is where the, the nicotine, uh, the stimulants, right? The energy drinks, the, the caffeine, all of those things that you're using throughout your shift are to maintain and sustain this hypervigilant state so that you can continue to pay attention. So your body doesn't ever get a chance to kind of come down and recover because you're still on shift. You still got to pay attention. And it literally is a life or death matter. Um, when cops go home, typically the body will naturally kind of want to dip back down. Um, except, you know, normally it takes the body roughly 18 to 24 hours to fully recover. We'll wear cops in 18 to 24 hours. They're back on the job. And also, by the way, they're human, so they don't just turn off at the end of the shift, right? The brain is still going through. Um, and it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be anything traumatic. It's just the way that our brain and body processes stuff. And so when you're continuing to have your body and your brain in this state throughout your career, your brain, in, a, in an effort to help you survive and cope with that, starts discounting some of those physical effects Right. So think about like when you when you first hit patrol, your first kind of code three response. Right. The adrenaline's up. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can hear it. Right. New, newer cops, you can hear them on the radio. You can hear that adrenaline. And then you're more, more seasoned folks because they're used to it by now. It really takes a lot to get them to that point. And I think, you know, cops get so used to just kind of dealing with it and working through it because they have to that when you retire, same things happen if you're um, injured on duty and you abruptly have to stop working, um, is that your, your body and your brain don't get the memo. So they are like a machine. They're used to operating on a specific routine. And now they don't have that routine. So they're still doing everything that they normally do, except there's no physical outlet. There's no, you know, none of that mental stimulation. Like if you're in a radio car, you're keeping your head on a swivel, you're listening to, you know, different radio channels, um, all of that abruptly changes. And so when you retire, your body and your brain now have to abruptly learn how to operate under different conditions, right? And it took years to train your body and brain to operate for the job. And it's going to take some time to teach it to operate for retirement. So a lot of those biological changes, when you don't have those outlets, when you don't have the mental stimulation, um, they start to feel like anxiety because when our bodies are in a heightened state, our heart rates up, blood pressure's up. And so when that happens in your, let's say at home, you know, sitting down watching TV, increased heart rate, blood pressure, respiration rate increases, that feels like anxiety. 
And so a lot of a lot of cops, my husband, you know, was one of them is sitting on the couch and you can feel it. And then you start scanning, looking for some sort of threat or some sort of assessment that's going to make that make sense. And it's not there. And so, again, brain goes to worst case scenario. Right. Oh, God, I'm having a heart attack. Oh, God. Right. And then so everything changes in. And a lot of cops, and like I said, my husband was one of these, end up in the emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack. They do all the tests and they say, oh, it's stress, right? Or anxiety, which that typically doesn't sit well mm-hmm. with cops or retired cops. They're like, what are you talking about? That's like a mental thing. I'm fine, you know, and, and not realizing or recognizing that. No, that's, that's biological. When you're feeling anxious or stressed, your body is operating a certain way. Um, and when you retire that abrupt change, anxiety is so common. Anxiety and panic attacks are so exceptionally common along with the opposite of that, which is depression, right? Not wanting to do much. Um, and that's, that's the piece I think for relationships, uh, where, where things can struggle. So for my husband, if you ask any of his bosses, they'll, they'll tell you throughout his career, don't let my husband's name's Tony. Don't let Tony be bored. A bored Tony is your worst nightmare because he wants to go, 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 go. And he's got nothing mm-hmm. to do. So he's going to be a pain in your butt. And so in retirement was the same deal. He was go, go, go. And he didn't have anything to do. So I was the, the nearest outlet. Right. So that would often um, result in just small arguments like headbutting, um, kind of unloading, you know, uh, anger, all of that spillover. Um, would come and then he would hit the dip. He'd burn that off and then hit the dip. And then it would be isolation, depression, alcohol, you know, just to try to kind of help his body recover. I'd like to circle back to what Antonin asked, which I mm-hmm. think is great, by the way. Uh, you know, I spent six years in the Marine Corps and there's always, uh, you know, people suffering from PTSD. 22 veterans commit suicide a day. As Officer Richard Jones of the Pueblo Police Department walks up. Hey. Put your hands up. He sees the man turn toward him with gun in hand. Put the weapon down. Don't move. Jones has his own gun out and ready. Put the weapon down. Put the weapon down. He's not looking at anybody, not doing anything, not saying anything. And he's got a thousand yard stare. Put the weapon down, sir. As Jones continues to yell, the gunman walks toward him and Jones sees he's wearing a sweatshirt indicating he's a veteran. Come on, man. One vet to another. Jones is not only a CIT officer, he trains others in crisis intervention. And this is how it works in the field. Dude, don't do it to another vet. Don't do it to me. Jones immediately uses his training to try to find a hook, some way to connect. Dude, I'm a retired Army guy. Let me help you. Don't make me do this. The armed veteran in a mental health crisis says he can get no help. Then let me help you, but not this way. Let me help you. As Jones pleads with the man, other officers arrive at the scene, weapons drawn. The vet is holding the loaded semi-automatic handgun stiffly at his side, and Corporal Richard Jones is hoping he does not raise it toward the officers. Please drop it, brother. We've lost too many already. I know you're hurting, man. I was too, but I went about four months ago. So let me help you, please. Despite the pleading, the man keeps asking Jones to shoot him. Shoot me. I can't do that, man. I can't do that. Suddenly, as Jones tries to move the conversation to appeal to the man's religious faith, the man puts his hands together on the gun as if he's going to raise it to fire. You believe in Jesus Christ, brother? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Then shoot me! No, don't, don't do it. 
I was in your shoes a few months ago, brother. It took everything in my body. Man, I'm six foot five, 300 pound paratrooper. Took everything in my world to call a VA and to finally get the help. And I got the help, but I want to help you, man, because I'm tired of losing brothers and sisters. But I can't help you if you don't help me, okay? The Lord sent me here to you today. He didn't send one of these other guys. He sent me as a vet to you to help you because I'm there. I've been there. After nearly 11 minutes of having his gun leveled at the man, pleading with him, the tense standoff finally ends. Just, just drop it. Just drop it. Okay, put your hands on your head for me. At that moment, Richard Jones knew he had succeeded in saving the life of a veteran just like him, who was in a mental health crisis. The relief was overwhelming. <laughs> After gathering himself best as he could, he went to the fellow vet and hugged him. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to get you some help. We're going to start right now. I'm going to get you over here to Parfum and we're going to get it taken care of, okay? Love you, bro. Good job, man. But the first time I heard the term PTSI was from George Bush when I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, but I never heard an explanation for it. So I, I, I want to thank you for that because I, I've heard him coin that years ago, but I never heard the explanation. So you actually talk about an injury that something um, will heal. I, I really appreciate that. I'm in constant conversations with fellow veterans that I've served with on a daily basis. Um, you know, that's one thing I wish I had with the police department. Uh, these, most of these guys, we still stay in touch. We have a, a, a special bond with the Marines I served with. And, and I wish that would, you know, happen with the police department as well. But I find there's a different dynamics with that. Yeah. Um, and that's fantastic what you're saying. So also what, what I wanted to ask you, because what what we, I noticed, and, and we talked about this a lot when I was in the Marine Corps, a lot of the men, and I, I guess we could talk about women too, but particularly the men when they left the Marine Corps, including myself, had issues with the testosterone levels dropping because when you're in the Marine Corps, you're constantly so physical, you're moving around so much. So when guys come out, their testosterone levels immediately drop and they start to, you see, a lot of times that's why you see uh, John Anthony, you see guys get out of the military sometimes, and, man, why is this guy, you know, why is this guy overweight? Why is he so out of shape? And it's because the testosterone levels were so high and then when they get out, they drop because they're not doing the same activities. Is that something we see also with law enforcement and, and is, you know, with men, the testosterone levels dropping, you know, is their libido changing? Uh, are they gaining weight? Uh, you know, are they going through those changes because testosterone? And are women also experiencing something like that as well in retirement? Yeah, I think part of it, uh, my guess, my best guess would be age related when you think about approximate ages for retirement and just natural changes that happen. Um, I think in addition to the testosterone, you're doing the constant adrenaline dumping and cortisol. And so that's the stuff where you start gaining the weight around the belly and the bum, right? That's all the cortisol and all the adrenaline. Um, and, and most definitely, you know, that that's going to impact how your body metabolizes stuff. Um, it's going to impact your mood, your energy levels, your motivation. And, you know, in retirement, you definitely have the physical changes but then you also have the emotional aspect. And so, you know, I always tell folks the, the brain and the body want to be on the same page. So if my body is feeling low, low energy, tired, um, you know, my mood is going to tend to want to come down to that level. Um, if my body's feeling, you know, activated and energetic, it's going to tend to increase my mood mm -hmm. or improve my mood a little bit. 
Um, and I think, yeah, definitely those biological changes contribute. That's why I tell, I tell cops and, you know, get those physical exams, mm -hmm. get those physical exams. I can't tell you how many cops, you know, when was your last physical uh, when I got hired on, <laughs> right? I was in the best shape of my life. <laughs> I say, come on, pay for insurance, like use, use your benefits, get that. And then also, you know, it's important to find a doctor who understands because I can't tell you, you know, you need to go to a doctor and say, look, I'm a police officer. I'm a first responder. Um, have them check your cortisol levels, right? Have them check thyroid, testosterone, all of these naturally occurring hormones. Um, but with the understanding that that as a first responder, as a cop, your body is put through a rigorous life, right? We always say cops age in dog years. Um, and they do think. You know, there's a good book. I don't know if you guys have read the book, <laughs> Dying for the Job. Have you heard of that book? Yeah. Uh, I, I use that terminology all the time. When I talk to people, especially like I'm in Bangkok, and like, hey, what are you doing? Like, you're traveling? Like, I'm retired. Like, but you're so young. And what did you do? I said, it was the NYPD. I said, but it's, it's dog years. <laughs> yeah. That's my husband gets that all the time. They go, you're how old? You're 56? You've been retired for six years? What? Why? I'm like, you have no idea. You know, but it's getting, it's the importance of all those checks. Make sure, you know, the hormone levels are good. Your cardiovascular system is good. Um, you know, get on top of that because the sooner you find out, the sooner they can intervene and chances are help you out. You know, cancer is a big thing too. My husband worked the clandestine labs for a big chunk of his career pre-OSHA requirements. And so a lot of his partners developed cancer. You know, and there's that that five year mark. I think that's the benchmark when you retire is I got to make it five years. And, um, you know, I can't even tell you how many how many people died, how many funerals we went to uh, just getting to that point. And, you know, my husband got healthier in retirement, took a while, but he got there. But as he was nearing that five year mark, he's six years retired now. But as he was nearing that five year mark, all of the anxiety increased because he was thinking this is going to be my luck. You know, one day after my five years, I'm going to get cancer. I'm going to have my heart attack. I'm going to do this. And then, you know, that's it. That's just my luck. And so, uh, what's I, good? yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so I what's said, look, good? let's go to the doctor. Let's make the appointments. I would much rather do that, use that benefit. We have it. And just peace of mind. To me, that's worth it. You know, that's the piece you can control. With retirement, sometimes there's a bunch of stuff you can control. You can make that appointment, get into the doctor, choose to, you know, physically get as healthy as you can, you know, and mentally that helps you out too. Dr. Baumgart, interestingly, and gentlemen, this is personal, but I'll share it. I had a cortisol test a few weeks ago. <laughs> I just got the results last week through the roof. Yep. And uh, I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised. <laughs> Because with all the injury, I have internal and external injuries. And some of my internal injuries are cardiac related, pulmonary. Mm -hmm. And I was also world trade. So I thought I'm going to all these doctors. I'm good, right? They're checking everything. Well, guess what? They were checking the basics, but they weren't checking the adrenals. I didn't know what mm -hmm. adrenals were, right? Um, I started going to an integrative doctor. Thank you, Dr. Baumgart, mm -hmm. when you talk about in your book mm -hmm. about doing all your medicals and really yeah. deep in, uh, diving deep into planning ahead for retirement. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm already retired, but because of your book, I retired a year ago, July 31st, August 1st. Because of your book, 
I'm treating now as the beginning of my retirement. Like the mm -hmm. past year, I feel like I was in purgatory, right? Just walking around like a zombie, having six surgeries and everyone telling me, you're so lucky, you're so lucky with medical bills through the roof, right? Mm -hmm. Then when I met you and this podcast, we were talking about surviving retirement. I took this manual and the day I opened it was two weeks ago, the week of my one year anniversary. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this homework and identify everything in here to help plan ahead because it's been a dark cave. So yeah, my cortisol is high and adrenals and I'm trying to address all that, but your book helps people thinking about retirement or even active cops look at their lives, cellular, look at their physical, mental, emotional. I, and I know we don't have much more time, but I want to hit on something you said that I really liked that you told your husband in the book, you said you've earned it about his retirement. So I want you to talk about potential guilt attached to retirement and the need to be hypervigilant and now to relax because we have mm -hmm. earned it however we've earned it. Um, and if you can expand more on the socialization part post-retirement, that would be mm -hmm. great. Yeah. So that was a uh, challenging piece for my husband because I think at the end of his career, um, I, I don't think he's alone in this, but right, people suck. And the job <laughs> reinforces that people suck right? Everybody's an idiot. People stuck. And so the thought of, um, it, when I talk about it in the book, is the thought of um, having to socialize and connect with people, uh, it does not sound very appealing at all. Um, the thought of having to, you know, meet new people and, um, you know, kind of put yourself out there, uh, I think a baseline for for humans, let alone cops, is not really ideal uh, in many cases. Um, but it's it's so 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 important because when you look at um, you know research on on even just stress, managing stress, um, research on protective factors for suicide, those meaningful connections, right? Those are the bridge between being in a really dark place and feeling a little bit better, um, you know, and going out and I, in telling, you know, telling my husband, I think logically he knew that he earned his retirement. He gave a lot to the job. Um, the job gave him a lot of health issues. And so, um, you know, really putting his head is like, no, you, you've earned this. And what he started to do is, um, you know, he looked at his pension and he said, all right, how many years do I need to live to kind of completely withdraw all the money that I put in. So get to that point where now the state is paying him, right? And that's that's 12 years for him. So his goal is I wanna hit my 12 years, then some. Because as far as he's concerned, he's like my 12 years, I'm just getting back the money I put in. So this is mine. You know, beyond that, now they're giving giving that to me and they owe that to me because of the job. And I think for him, that was a huge shift in his mindset. Um, and then also changed how he approached retirement. You know, because I, I tell folks, look, the circumstances sometimes aren't the greatest, but it doesn't take away from all that you gave to this job. And so, yeah, I don't care if you, you know, work 10 years, 12 years, 15, 20, 30 plus, um, you earned it. This job takes, takes, takes. And especially these days, it doesn't feel like it gives back. And so recognizing that, you know, you can do that for yourself and that's using, using the book. And that was my big points. And when I wrote this book is I want to give people, 
that roadmap of here's how you do that. And if you're doing okay in a certain area, that's great. Keep it up. If you're struggling, self-assess, take inventory. Let's see where the issue is. And then, by the way, here's some tools to help you, you know, navigate that. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a huge, huge, uh, huge motivating factor for me beyond the book. Because uh, my husband, he's not a social butterfly. <laughs> so, so just getting him to kind of, you know, own that and, and find his way to make it work. And it took some time. Is he going to make a cameo? We're looking for him. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> right before this started, he goes, by the way, in case they ask, the answer is still no. <laughs> like I got I a Facebook radio. It won't fly to take a peek. <laughs> but he did write two, three pages of the book. Mm -hmm. I like at the end, he shares yeah. his story, which was very personal mm -hmm. and meaningful. It's like, you know, when you get a new book, you want to go to the end and read it. <laughs> He's at the end. And I like that he shared his uh, few pages. Thank him. Very yeah, excellent. I will. Thank you. Yeah. And he, he approved all of the stories, everything that's in there. And for me, it was important to, to capture exactly what he was experiencing and then tell it kind of through, through my lens and what that looked like. So I'm, I'm proud of him. I think too, doing all of this is helping him in his retirement. Does he go with you to the workshops that you give? You're doing mm -hmm. surviving retirement and you do it together, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So we do an in-person workshop and him not being the social butterfly, the first class, he's like, ah, if people ask me questions, I'll, I'll answer. So during the breaks, people would talk to him. Uh, then we could go to start the second class, you know, ah, maybe I could share a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so now he kind of, you know, gives his testimony um, and then during the breaks, we'll answer questions while we're going through the stuff. He'll he'll chime in and, and give his take on it. Um, you know, and I, I think it's exceptionally important because, you know, even in, in the job I have with my department, I tell people, look, at the end of the day, like I'm a nerd, right? I'm a civilian nerd. So I kind of get it, but I, I don't really get it. So having him share, you know, his experience being a cop through retirement um, he's, he's a little stubborn. So, right. I don't want to say I told you so, but in the book, in the afterward, he does say that I'm right. So I have it in writing, but he does say that, you know, I, my wife told me to do these things and I didn't do them. And here's the price I paid. Um, and so I think that's important too, for other cops to hear is I don't think you're going to get it right out the gate, but just understand, you know, that, that you can self-correct and reorient and really, you know, write that next chapter. Don't let the, don't let the department, don't let your agency, don't let the job write your retirement chapter for you. You get out there and you write that chapter. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think one of the big things I want to go from a word from our sponsors is taking care of your financial health too. Mm -hmm. Don't expect your unions or some guy who conned the whole city into voting for him to be in charge of your retirement and your pension and mm -hmm. your money. You have to invest your money yourself. I mean, yeah. if you want to know people that have law enforcement knowledge that are retired law enforcement, that's why me and Eric, our first sponsors were Laid Law Blue, retired detective. We highly recommend life insurance. Even if you don't go with them, have a conversation, mm -hmm. get a free consultation, explore your options, not only while you're on the job, but after you get off, while you're preparing for retirement, because I'll tell you right now, if I wasn't financially stable, I would be dead because mm -hmm. there's no way that I would be able to deal with that level of stress and that anxiety. And I was only able to do that because of the things that I did financially mm -hmm. while 
good job. Yeah, Laidlaw Blue's great. I'm actually um, doing a webinar with them September 6th awesome. with Laidlaw Blue and Irish Angel. Awesome. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm actually gonna be there with you. Oh, nice. I'll be there with you. So, well, word from our sponsors. Law enforcement professionals dedicate their lives to serving and protecting our community, but who's protecting their financial futures? That's where Laidlaw Blue comes in. Our wealth management platform is specifically designed for the law enforcement community. Laidlaw Blue is a division within Laidlaw Wealth Management run by retired New York City detective John McDermott. His status as a retired detective uniquely positions him to establish a deep connection between Laidlaw Blue and the law enforcement community. Our platform is easy to use and provides a range of financial services, including investment management, retirement planning, and insurance solutions. With Laidlaw Blue, you can secure your financial future and provide for your loved ones. Our team of experienced financial advisors understands the unique challenges and opportunities that law enforcement professionals face. We're here to help you navigate the complexities of financial planning, and achieve your goals. Laidlaw Blue, secure your financial future today. Book a meeting using the QR code displayed or call us directly on 888-901-BLUE. That's 888-901-BLUE. All right, so... Well we're coming up on an hour. Let's uh, let's go around one more time, and then I, I think we should we should start to wrap it up. I don't want to keep the good doctor. I know she's she's had a long day herself. Eric, it's about one o'clock in the morning for him. So, <laughs> but first of all, I, I just want to say that I think there should be some type of course that we can label it transition or something a course that you transition from working to retirement. And we talked about this on prior podcasts. I, I don't know if you had an opportunity to see them, doctor. But John and I talk about this in depth. And it's extremely problematic. There's absolutely no transition. When you actually make the decision to retire, mm -hmm. and now because of COVID, you could actually do it by Zoom. So John, John and I, and I, I think you probably did as well when, when you went out, Antoinette. But it was a phone call. I mean, here you are. We spent almost 20 years within the department. You have this emotional attachment to it. You're so invested, right, financially, emotionally physically and it's a one it's a phone call that lasted about an hour and the person i spoke to was was a civilian worker was just so cold about it and they're supposed to be retirement counselors and i had a my, my situation was was definitely peculiar it wasn't a typical retirement i was leaving with administrative charges against me uh which was i completely uh opposed to what the union had advised me and if i would have went by the advice of the union i probably would have been terminated t today but I actually, you know, took my own effort and made the decision to retire. So I had called several times to ask questions. And I was met with nothing but resistance and reluctance, especially from Sergeant, Sergeant Kathleen Russell that works at the pension section. And it's supposed to be retirement counseling. And they didn't want to provide any counseling, any guidance at all. It was just pretty much let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. So with that being said, you get to this point when you actually retire – for NYPD, I'm not sure how it is for your husband or other law enforcement agencies. We went down to the uh, police academy for the New York City Police Department. And within a couple of hours, 
You sign a couple pieces of paper. It's a very cold room. There's a pillow. You can put your shield on it and take some pictures. But the second that you sign this paperwork, you're already given your ID card. And you know what you're told right away when you get the ID card? That you can't come back in. It, it won't scan. It won't work anymore. So the second that you got your paperwork, you are immediately removed. And it just hits you at that point, And there's no transition period. So what I'd like to ask you is this. If you were going to design a course for a transition of getting into retirement, what would your syllabus look like? Uh, I have designed that course. And um, <laughs> so we, uh, we, we uh, do it in person a couple times a year out here in California uh, because they get a lot of requests uh, from the Midwest, out East. Um, I've actually, I'm currently working on an on-demand version of that. So that's on schedule to be um, finished by the end of September. Um, so that's on my website, drbombgart.com. and click on trainings and sign up. Um, it's essentially a lot of it is what we cover in the book. You know, a lot of it is is general just education information because I think if you if you know what to expect and you know why certain things are happening, that gives you a frame of reference to interpret it. Instead of worst case scenario, something's wrong with me. You know, um, so it's a lot of information. Uh, we pause at different points in the class to take inventory and answer, uh, begin answering some of those questions um, and then just gaining some tools. You know, the, the whole goal of my class is to teach people what to expect, uh, why these things happen, give you a, a framework to interpret those experiences and, and really get a sense of where you stand. Um, and then the tools to um essentially train, I call it training up for retirement, right? Just like you had to train up for the job, you got to train up for retirement. So really trying to kind of um, make that transition smoother. Um, and that's a lot of personal storytelling. Uh, it's, it's very practical stuff. I kind of call it like the meat and potatoes. Everybody's going to be different. You're really not going to know how you're going to do till you get there. But if, you know, if you have some equipment, if you have some stuff in your retirement duty bag, that you can pull out and reference, you know, that makes a big difference. And, and I also encourage spouses to go to the spouses. We are the support system. And I can tell you as a spouse, you know, we get used to running our own program and, you know, my husband love him to death, but when he first retired, he was messing up my program. <laughs> and so that led to a lot of headbutting. <laughs> this, whole, like this. <laughs> this whole role reversal. And, um, yeah, it, it was it was just funny because he started experiencing now that he's retired, I'm still working. Um, and he started experiencing some of the things that I experienced when I was going to grad school and he was working, um, you know, coming home and not really ready to have a conversation right when I walked through the door, um, you know, being tired, all of these things. And he it, it was a huge you know role reversal, but it's important as a spouse to understand that because we tend to personalize, right? So um, even with all the knowledge I had when we were fighting more and arguing more, um, I was like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? I thought we'd be good, you know? And so it's important for spouses to get that info as well. And it just equips them because I don't want a spouse to feel like I felt. I don't want a spouse to feel powerless and helpless. You know, you supported your, your law enforcement officer through their career. You need to learn how to support them in retirement and support yourself you got to do it together. Antoinette, you got anything to close you want to ask the good doctor? 
Thank you, Dr. Medina, for coming on today. Thank you for taking my cold call mm -hmm. uh, from, from New York City, right? I appreciate it. Uh, I love the book, obviously, I can't say it enough, but I love in the back of the book, the additional resources. Mm -hmm. And what stood out to me personally, since I spoke about my line of duty, you have something for Wounded Blue, yes. uh, Beyond the Badge 365, Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement. And I like that this is an economical approach Mm -hmm. that truly gives nuggets that a cop could look at and see a positive quote or mm -hmm. find a phone number to call for additional resources. I'm actually going to call Wounded uh, Blue mm -hmm. because they offer for line of duty people additional resources yes. that the job doesn't cover me for. That's, that's a struggle. Mm -hmm. I think your book helps us identify the struggle and the solution going forward, not just you know, when people, when you go through a tragedy, what do people tell you? Everyone here has heard it. If you need anything, let me know, right? You know how many people I've called for a ride to get into my treatments or to my appointments and a car is not, a housing's not available, right? Or I'm retired or I got this, I got that. And, you know, these are well-meaning people, but my thing is then don't put it out there. Mm -hmm. Your book puts it out there with a real solution. So I'm hoping Personally, you and I, I, I know we spoke offline, mm -hmm. we'll be in touch because I think big, like mm -hmm. meeting you, right? I'm thinking of going to the police foundation and all these doors that were shut in our face to get this book into every cop when they retire, whether it's at pension or Eric, the shield desk. I know a great detective and a civilian there who actually did come around and made my experience relatively positive as I was on my way back to the hospital. I literally handed in my shield. My family was there and I was back at the hospital in New York City. But these two individuals, they really made it positive. So I'm hoping we can get this donated so that when cops leave, they don't leave with just the cop mug. They leave with the roadmap that will give them some sort of hope, guidance, comfort. And I also got to say the podcast has been, uh, I think this is the only thing job related that I've been attached to the past year, which is how we spoke, Eric. I saw you on a side note, Eric, last summer when you were cleaning out your office and desk. I think I was up there getting my stuff. It was really abrupt. And I saw the look in your face. I, I just had surgery. And I thought to myself, you got to be doing more for your future, for what you believe in, and you're doing it. And then I met John McCarvey from here, who a lot of people criticize and they've criticized me for being attached to this all the watchers out there i know you're criticizing right now they criticize me calling me a sellout um and other things i want to keep it positive because we're talking about you know positive roadmap but to leave your employment for your faith your values your integrity i get it because when i was told that it was time to leave it was after i received you know i didn't get the vaccine so i knew that it was all connected and to be rejected by a blue family the way we were really, I think, motivated for this podcast to grow, for the messaging to help cops and to send out positive message. A lot of people say you guys are retired lieutenants who are ranting and raving. Yeah, you're exposing the truth. But with that exposing the truth, you're finding solutions. And Dr. Baumgart's a part of it. Marianne with the retiree association is a part of it. Uh, you have Sal Greco. Also, uh, the gentleman who did that sports program. What was it for special needs kids? I forgot his name. Homestart, I think. Um, you have a lot of positive resources that I think cops needed unfiltered. And hopefully going forward, it continues. The unfiltered message will bring positive solutions to all of our lives. Absolutely. Uh, Anthony, you. you brought up a great point. Doc, I want to let you go, but I think we just got to 
I just what? want your sorry. Opinion. I, <laughs> I I think I just want your opinion on one more thing because Antoinette just sparked it in my head. And for those mm. of you that don't know, Antoinette does uncompensated consulting for us, <laughs> the same way that Sal Greco got fired for uncompensated security. The same way that me and Eric are doing uncompensated consulting for the unions to and and upper echelon the <laughs> to show them how to lead and to bring truth out in their messaging and to not be afraid to have the hard conversations about mental health, about the issues that actually people are facing. And guess what? It's okay to ask a question. Um, I know Eric, myself, I could tell just from the short time I know Antoinette that the things that we talked about, we've been talking about our entire adult lives in in policing we talked about them on coffee breaks we talked about them on details we talked about them in the car with the men and women who served with us um i didn't develop my ideology in a moment's notice this mm -hmm. is who i am it's who i've always been it's the things i've always talked about it's the same with eric i'm sure when his guys listen to him the same way when the men and women that work with me listen to me like, ah, i heard that before this guy doesn't shut up he's still talking about it but we get a lot of criticism for you're retired. Go away. And I know for a fact I'm never going to, and Eric's never going to, and Antoinette's never going to. It's a part of who we are. The things that we explore are issues that do weigh on our mind. Uh, there are people in retirement that I know that completely disassociate themselves with the job. Um, what do you think is, is, is a good approach for retirement, should you begin to disassociate yourself with the job? Should you, how could, and, 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 and for a personal, how could I deny who I am? My friend, mm -hmm. my good friend told me, stop the podcast, stop doing news, stop, get off of social media, forget the job. It's over. Right. And I'm like, well, it's who I've always been. You're telling me to not be myself. Mm -hmm. so what do you like? What would you give recommendations to to us three as far as as far as for mental health? Um, I, I definitely think it's it's a balance, um, and I think you know a lot of what you guys do and with the podcast is is really it's rediscovering mission and purpose, right? I know folks will think, oh my gosh, you guys are on the soapbox ranting and raving and this and that and the other thing, but it's really bringing to light issues that are not only for the department but nationwide. Um, in an effort to better not only the job, but the lives of those officers who are doing the work. Um, I think I'm always skeptical when folks retire and they completely shun the job. Um, those folks I, I worry about because I think at some point in time, it's going to hit them like a truck. Um, I, I think it's finding a way to honor your role as a police officer what you what you gave to that how that changed you for better for worse you know kind of the whole package um i i don't think completely shunning it is the answer i i think that's more of like avoidance right emotional mm -hmm. avoidance right this hurt me i'm irritated by it i don't want to think about it i just want to be done with it um and and to me it's that's you know some healings needed there and i think if you can find a way to honor your work as a police officer honor the job itself, and then also recognize that that's a, a piece of the pie. There's lots more pie. And figuring out what the rest of that pie looks like 
And, um, you know, that that leads to that purpose and fulfillment and retirement. You know, the job's a part of you. When my husband retired, he got on on his 21st birthday. He did 29 years on the job. So he was a cop longer than he was not a cop at the time he retired. And recognizing that the job changes you and who you are today is because of the job, good and bad bits. And so finding those pieces that that work mm -hmm. for you, that enhance your value and your worth those positive things that you can bring because of the job, you know, when I hear really grumpy, my, my husband was crusty, right. Everything sucked. Um, but it's like, you know, that, that piece, the fact that you feel that way tells me you care mm. and caring when you get at the end of your job, that tells me that you haven't lost your humanness and that's a good thing. And so hanging on to that and how do I channel that care right from anger to, okay, I do care. And how can I then give that to myself to something else? I think is the biggest thing. And it's going to look different for everybody, but just keeping those things in mind. I just want to say one more thing. Uh, talk about PTSD and PTSI and, mm -hmm. and what John just said. And uh, in light of Antoinette, your last statement is fantastic and everything that you're saying here, Doctor. It really reminds me of the movie First Blood with Sylvester Stallone and when he plays Rambo. If anybody, I'm sure everybody saw it, right? But at the end of the movie, uh, he says, nothing's over. Nothing's over. Look at him out there. Look at him. If you don't end this now, they're going to kill you. Is that what you want? It's over, Johnny. It's over. Nothing is over. Nothing. You just don't turn it off. It's in my head. It's in my head. I can't get it out. I'm still thinking about it. And you know what? For us, it's still in our head. You know, our service with the police department, good and bad. And and, and, I, and that's what my message is to the public. We're not going to fade away and just disappear. We're going to be here. We're going to keep speaking out. And we're going to utilize. We're an outside force to help within, to help be the catalyst for changes for, the, for better. And, and I don't think we should have to fade away and disappear. And that's ultimately what people don't understand. Like, well, you guys are retired. And it's almost like they treat us, it, it's our death. Like, we shouldn't hear from you again. But you know what? It's just another segment of life. And mm -hmm. so, again, Doctor, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on here and taking your time out. You're so insightful. Thank and you, I can't thank you enough that you are always thank you. cool and trying to find stuff. And I mean, this is fantastic. I really, in, in this short segment, I've learned so much from you. I really appreciate it. It really correlates. To, I love correlating life to different movies and thinking about different things. I really appreciate it. And uh, it definitely made me reflect on my own life. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I left in anger. And uh, you know, I'm still angry. I, I don't know if that's ever going to go away. But I, I'm trying to use that anger to give out a positive message mm -hmm. to make changes. I don't want what happened to me to happen to others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the goal. Antoinette, do you want to leave us with something before we kick it to the doctor? Do you want to leave a message to the to, to our listeners? I just want to tell everyone out there, we're here for you. A lot of you have reached out personally, individually, and I know we protect your identity, but you give us good information to put out there. But aside, putting everything aside, the joking and uh, even the disgruntlement of the job, if that's a word, we're here for you, however we can help you. And I wanna thank you, Dr. Medina, for being there for us in this short time. Uh, I'm gonna reread this book. Eric, this is your copy. I have it here ready to send to you. 
But for those who do get the book or who are considering it, get the book, the resources alone in the back are a nugget, a wealth of information, and so is the information in here. And I just hope that everyone finds their purpose and fulfillment, which is what the book is about, beyond the badge, because we are human and we're more than just the blue and just the shield. And I'm still fumbling through what that means. Uh, so thank you for this opportunity, gentlemen and Doc, for having me here. I appreciate it. No, we thank you for coming on. And to all listeners, you know, there will be a link wherever you're listening or watching, whether it be YouTube, Rumble, Apple, Spotify, wherever you are, there'll be a link to purchase the book. I'll more than likely put the Amazon link that I bought it from. Doc, I'd like to leave you with the last words. But before you give us your last words, could you could you just uh, let everyone know where they could find you and follow you and different mm -hmm. ways to purchase the book? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn under Medina Baumgart, on Instagram uh, at Dr. underscore Baumgart. Uh, my website, uh, www.drbaumgart.com, has all my info. Um, at the bottom of the page is my email address. Uh, folks can email me directly. Uh, if they have questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, if you have feedback about the book, you know, I'm, I'm always wanting to hear that stuff um, because it helps me uh, and also helps my husband to know that, you know, we, we poured our heart and soul into this book and, and we want it to help folks. And if there's anything missing from the book or any, you know, additional info you need, send me an email. I'll get back to you. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't say I, I'm not one of those Antoinette knows, like I'll respond to emails. I'm not one of those. It's like, oh yeah, email me, email me. And you'll never hear from me. No, you'll hear from me. Um, and just reach out. Uh, to me, to you guys, you know, to whoever they need to. Um, even if you need additional resources, I'm here. I just, I want folks to to get through retirement. Uh, you guys earned it, um, you know, and, and deserve it. So I'm just here to hopefully help with that. Thank you. No, I appreciate Thank it. You. Yeah, we appreciate it. So ladies and gentlemen, surviving retirement, we got the great Dr. Medina Baumgart joined by Antonette Henriquez. We appreciate you. New York's finest retired on filter podcast. We'll be back at you. <laughs>